Welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast, where we challenge longstanding assumptions, beliefs, and attitudes about what it means to be healthy by exploring new points of view, researching concepts about health, and in other words, all the topics that everyone's talking and asking about. I'm your host, Doug Cook. In this podcast, I want to encourage you, the listener, to think differently about your own health and health pursuits and to keep an open mind as we explore diverse perspectives new evidence and strategies by connecting with thought leaders who are pushing the boundaries in the health sciences. More and more health professionals, including doctors, are challenging conventional wisdom when it comes to long-standing advice on healthy eating. Through their own experiences of becoming overweight and pre-diabetic, Many have turned to low-carb, high-fat, keto, and lower-carb diets to effectively lose weight and reverse the abnormal lab indices that they and their peers normally prescribe medications for. Once considered fad diets, low- and lower-carb and high-fat diets are now taking their rightful place in the management of metabolic disease. Welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast. I'm your host, Doug Cook. I recently spoke with Dr. L.A. Yarouge, a board-certified internal medicine doctor who received his medical degree from State University of New York, University at Buffalo School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. He did his internal medicine and nephrology residencies at Baylor College of Medicine and has been a hospitalist in Houston, Texas since 2013. LA's own experience with a 30 pound or 14 kilogram weight gain over an eight year period of his medical training left him with increasing blood pressure, low energy levels, and pre-diabetic at the ripe old age of 28. As a hospitalist, he saw firsthand how the medications he was prescribing, while beneficial in the short term, weren't addressing the underlying cause of his patient's chronic illness. In short, they were just band-aids. Given his own experience with declining metabolic health and seeing and treating patients with advanced chronic disease, he knew he had to do something for his own health and for the health of his patients. In this episode, he shares his story. Eli, welcome to the Pursuit of Health podcast. Hi, Doc. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, so for people, just to provide a little bit of context, I thought I followed you on Twitter, but it turns out I don't, but I'm going to and everyone else should. So I obviously became familiar with you because I was seeing other people sharing and commenting on your posts. And I was under the false impression I was following you. But the point being is that the reason I wanted to have you on is because you are a doctor and you follow some what would might be considered unusual dietary practices if you think of normal dietary guidelines and because you post really, really thoughtful tweets and they get a lot of engagement. So that's why I wanted to have you on. So just before we get into that, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your background and your training? Uh, of course. Well, I thought you followed me too because I see your likes and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so that was good. I know and I started following you as well. You know, my journey has been random in a sense. Grew up in Lebanon, and as a kid, I always wanted to be a doctor, but also in Lebanon, everybody is either a doctor or an engineer, so your parents call you doctor from a young age. A doctor would come to home, home visit for my grandmother, and I was fascinated with how they treat and then make her feel better. So I grew up with that dream of becoming a doctor. 
over time, I mean, I got the opportunity to uh, immigrate to the States. So I came to New York uh, in 2000 and went to undergrad, did the usual biology with one mission, go make it to medical school. So uh, I managed to get in in 2004. I wasn't too far from you. I was in Buffalo. So I went to Buffalo Medical School, SUNY Buffalo State University. Then I moved to Houston for residency. I did internal medicine, a conventional, again, conventional approach. I also did nephrology training, which I know you were a nephrology dietitian for a while. And then after that, it just didn't, wasn't feeling right. I just didn't feel that this is my calling. I enjoyed the physiology, but it was all a lot of chronic diseases. So I went back to do hospital medicine because I wanted something to fix acute medicine, heart attack, whatever comes into the hospital, you can do something about it. And then after several years, I had my own health issues kind of creeped up on me. During my residency training, you just eat whatever in the hospital, junk food. And then over time, I gained 30 plus pounds, became hypertensive with high blood pressure. I uh, also started having uh, metabolic syndrome, high triglyceride, all that stuff. And I thought I just have to do what conventional advice does, you know, eat less calories, move more, try to exercise. And when I started doing that, I started throwing out my back. Every few months, I have a complete back attack spasms where I'm on the floor for a couple of weeks. And I thought it was bad luck, went to doctors, physical therapists, uh, all these things. And it never clicked that there's something connected to nutrition, inflammation, all these things. Long story short, eventually I started diving into health and I tried something, the whole 30 program. I don't know if you, it was a popular mm -hmm. program yeah. back a few years ago. Basically paleo was a focus on psychology of food and, you know, just focus on real healthy food. And that did actually, I did so well with it for, I did it two months and I lost 15, 20 pounds on that program. And a light bulb went off. I was like, okay, there's something to it. My blood pressure improved. My back improved 80%. And like everybody else, you dive into nutrition. So I started listening to podcasts, reading books, all these things. And all of a sudden, instead of being excited about working at the, as a hospital, which I still enjoy, I find my free time reading books, listening to podcasts, and then dive into it. Eventually, jumped into ketogenic diet myself. I wanted to see, um, I mean, I, I thought back, I was like, okay, I, when I was 17, 18, I, I weighed 160. Why am I, I was up to 190 pounds, so in kilos, so I mean, close to 85, 90 kilos. So uh, I did the ketogenic diet, and I didn't think I had even more weight to lose, and not that it was a focus. So I started doing that, and then back pain completely disappeared, health issues completely disappeared, and then this is when I started advocating for my patients to dive into health nutrition to reverse their conditions because i realized all i do is prescribe medicine massive symptoms so this is a in a nutshell kind of a long journey so i guess it's been my experience 22 years now counting that maybe it's just because the physicians i know do what they do and they do it well but in the back of the mind they must know that weight would have a impact on these metabolic parameters but the standard of care of course is you know you go through these decision algorithms and those decision algorithms are really to help people decide when to start a medication so with what you're describing it's the usual suspects right it's like blood pressure medication 
lipid medication. And if there's high fasting insulin or A1C, it's something like metformin. You posted a tweet. One of the things that you did, this is out there, so it's public domain, and it's not it's not disparaging. It's just, it's again, it's one of these reflective thoughts that you shared. And you said, when it comes to the management of chronic diseases, I feel that my profession, doctors, have turned to a legalized drug dealing enterprise. The sad part is that most doctors are oblivious to it. I still believe most are well-meaning, but they have a hammer in their toolbox only. So... As a doctor, I mean, I can speculate, but as a doctor, what made you say that and why do you think this is the case? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, you examine a patient, you diagnose, we're very good diagnosticians, we get all the best tools and images and thought process and education. So when you come to the assessment and the plan, you put a diagnosis and you have to have a plan of it. And you kind of realize over time that the plan is always start this medicine, add this medicine, increase the dose of this medicine. And then everybody's, I think every human being is well-intentioned, even when the results tend to be not in their favor. So doctors want to help patients. So dietitians want to help patients. Everybody wants to help patients. Nobody has malicious intent. But what ends up happening is you just, patient comes in with zero medications with all these conditions, and they leave with a list of 10 medications. And the clinic, I'm sure it's the same thing. I just happen to be working in the hospital. So if you walk in with a heart attack, you leave with probably five different medications because you have to follow these guidelines that you have to be on a statin, you have to be on aspirin and beta blocker and all these things. And then when it comes to nutrition, really very little mention of it. And if there is a mention, diabetes, dietitian consulted, obesity, lifestyle counseled. You know, but that's about it. And when a dietitian comes or nutritionist, I used to call them all the time, but then I realized when the list they give them, it doesn't make any sense. Like mm-hmm. the tray that comes to their bedside is even more diabetes inducing than others. And so, so it's become this okay, prescription, prescription, prescription. So who's benefiting really is these drug companies who make these medicines to help the symptoms. And really when nobody's fixing any problems, they're making it worse. Uh, so this is where it came from. It's just kind of sometimes I sit in the morning and I'm contemplating how are we in this mess? And then uh, I'm playing a role. I still in the hospital when I see patients at the end of the day, you want to make sure they don't die at first. So a lot of time, most of the time, these medicines are necessary, but they're necessary bridge in my opinion, but they end up being an end. And then the list grows and grows and grows. Yeah, and no one's suggesting that there isn't a time and place for medication. There absolutely is. But to your point that if there's something underlying, it really can't address. They're not meant to address the underlying issue. They interfere with the metabolic pathway. So if you're trying to reduce cholesterol, you're trying to throw a wheel into a cog or whatever the expression is, where you're trying to kind of slow down or gum up the metabolism so you produce less cholesterol. So they are they can be stopgap measures. So I'm just dying to know, and I don't know if you have an answer to this, but like it, as part of your training, like why do you, th- you see doctors are oblivious to it? I'm just wondering culturally, is there, I've heard the argument be made, and I don't want to put you on the spot, that a lot of medical education is funded or influenced by maybe pharmaceutical companies or companies that make medical devices. And Mm -hmm. so I'm not going to go as far that they sit around a boardroom and decide they're not going to teach people the right stuff, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist that way. But I'm just wondering, like, culturally, are they just kind of taught to focus on medication or do they 
do they not have any understanding of like the biochemical pathways of insulin resistance and lipid dysregulation and that kind of thing? You know, when you're in first year medical school, it's all theory and biochemistry, all that stuff. When you look back, if for some reason we forget that, but when we look back and everything we learned, if you just have to use common sense, you would end up what we're doing now to try to reverse metabolic diseases. But some reason when we jump from the classroom to the clinical side, everything changes and becomes algorithm-based, drug-based. And then when you're a you're a naive medical student, you don't know much, and you have these authorities or doctors who had the experience, and basically they teach what they learned as well, we end up basically all singing the same song. And then you don't have the knowledge or the confidence to even think about that. And you're so overwhelmed with the amount of information, you just do what you learn. And that's what I did. I mean, I was, I still kind of do because a lot of times you're kind of boxed into this algorithm and being graded to check the boxes, but at least I'm conscious of it, but we still, many doctors still do what they think is right, what the authorities have taught us that this is what you need to do. So, and then when you want to educate masses, you need funding. And in the event, the companies who have money are the sponsors are drug companies and, you know, technology companies. I still think those companies are in it to help. Yes, it's business. They're going to make money. So I'm not faulting them for that, but I don't, think doctors or we know intentionally are being brainwashed or anything like that. So I don't, I don't know how to answer this, except it is happening. Mm-hmm. Money talks and then influence all decisions. But I, I'm not, again, I was like you, I'm not going to go into conspiracy theories for that. Yeah. In fairness, it's the same thing with dietitians. So we get the basics. You go to an internship for a year in a hospital, your mentors, you know, are kind of bringing you up to speed to help you develop clinical skills. You don't have the experience, the knowledge, et cetera, to, you might have a feeling in your gut, like, hmm, isn't there something else to consider? But you can't, you can't even bring it up because you just don't have that experience or confidence. Right. And then you kind of repeat what you do. And a lot of people are well-intended. So I, I, I hear that for sure. And just on an aside, it is, I guess it's the same in the US. I, I don't, we don't have private hospitals like they do in the US. So I had no I think in private hospitals, you can get better quality food, but there's very little money to spend. Like in, in the hospital I work at, it's $11 Canadian to provide three meals. So to your point, it's going to be cheap food. So the diabetic diet is sugar-free jello, sugar-free yogurt, sweetener, but they still get muffins and juice and that kind of stuff. So it is very hard to do these therapeutic Diets. So the next tweet I was going to share, and this is you posted it, but Hippocrates is supposedly credited with it. I think it's a good segue to a couple questions. So the tweet reads, if someone wishes for good health, one must first ask oneself if they are ready to do away with the reasons for their illness. Only then is it possible to help them. So on the surface, <laughs> that is like so blatantly obvious, ob- obvious and yeah. simple and easy. Do you think people kind of understand why they're unwell or why they might be dealing with these metabolic issues? Like people understand that smoking's bad, drugs bad, drinking and driving's bad, but do you think people know what healthy eating is? Do you think that's just a big mess? Especially if they're getting muffins on their train. Briefly, it's a big mess. But I do think everybody at a, at a deeper level know that their lifestyle is not helping their health. Now, whether they know what they need to do about it 
completely different story. I think this is where people actually confuse. They don't, they don't know. I was confused. I didn't know. I look around doctors, my colleagues. I mean, you can see the, the trajectory for their health just based on their, how they eat. So in a way, and they're congruent with their advice. Like they, they don't target or discuss nutrition or any of that as a root cause of the problems because they're not thinking, they're not in that frame of mind, you know? So I do think people know but like smokers, like alcohol, just knowing doesn't mean they're going to change their behavior. And knowing that food is just as addictive, certain foods as, as alcohol or smoking, it's going to take a lot of conscious effort to turn the tide, you know? Yeah. And I think part of the problem is because because in diabetes anyway, you know, you have people saying, well, I'm doing everything right. I'm eating my steel cut oats at breakfast and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm using sweetener instead of brown sugar, like maybe they're using brown sugar. Yep, all grain. So this is why I wondered, it's like, is that tweet obvious to them? But is there such a mess in terms of what we've defined as healthy eating and, and communicating that? And I'm just wondering if you've found, what kind of barriers have you found or resistance you've had with patients? Because you apply a lot of your own experience, which is not just anecdotal, it's based on right. evidence that we, we can just put that to rest if people want to question that. There's evidence for lower carb, low carb, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just wondering if you could share your experiences around patient resistance or barriers. Since I work in the hospital, so I see patients in the most vulnerable, most sick time. So usually it can be fertile ground to behavioral change or they'd be more open to it. You can tell some people are really motivated, their research, they can actually tell you more than you know. And sometimes I've learned from them and then go look for it. So some people are open to it. And then you can tell from the beginning if they're, they're, they're rolling their eyes and not interested, they want to eat whatever they want to eat. And then that doesn't go far. So I don't even try to convince them. But yeah, I usually ask them, hey, do you understand what's going on? Do you have a desire to change things? Pills are not going to fix it. There is a way. It's not an easy way, but you, you can do it. And then some people are interested. And this is the kind of people I can go in and spend 30 minutes. I'm flexible in the hospital. I have the 12-hour shift, so I can go back and forth. So I go back and spend time with them and explain and guide them to books and podcasts and Twitter to some, some accounts and stuff like that. So some people listen, but I never know what happens after that. I mean, they could be motivated, but I don't have the luxury to follow them over time after they leave the hospital to see what happens to them. Occasionally I get a glimpse, they come back and tell me, hey doctor, I did this and I lost 10 pounds and thank you. And, but you know, there's still a long way to go. So, I mean, you, you only have to spend five minutes on social media to hear the extreme spectrum uh, dogmatic approach from from all the way, you know, on both, on both ends, you know, just what's right. Uh, for every study that you find low carb is good, you get slammed with like 10 other studies that tell you it's not good and then, and vice versa. So, and that's a problem. And person who's not like scientifically doesn't understand the scientific methods of research, they would just take any headlines and get scared. Eggs are dangerous or meat's going to kill you or, you know, this vegetable is going to wreck your gut. You know, so there's, there's like so many different confusing advice out there so they're they're stunned they just kind of keep doing what they're doing because they don't know and then the resistance comes uh they don't people don't want to change what they're doing they want it's hard to change habits i failed so many times before i actually got to a point where i'm automatic mode like i don't have to think about food or what i have to restrain myself you know it became natural 
my hormonal and hunger signal, all the things right now are working properly where I can act appropriately. But there's so much psychology involved before we get to the actual science of it. I've been doing this, like I said, a long time. And back when I started, there was no internet. There really wasn't. And there was certainly no social media. And so the channel of information was very hierarchical. It was like academia, kind of go down to the usual steering committees, clinical practice guidelines, and then through educators or professionals. I'm not saying that has to be that way. I think there's a way to share information quicker or more directly. But I just find to your point that there's so much out there that I've, this is just a person suddenly making the podcast about me, but I've kind of moved away from private practice. I'm doing other forms of things like the podcast or other things where I can express or share my interest in nutrition because the waters have become so muddy because there's so much information out there. So I find a lot of the resistance or barriers are to these ingrained ideas that have gotten I'm not sure how to say it, gotten there before me. So, you know, mm-hmm. people are so entrenched in low fat or they think that oatmeal is great or they think, you know, that to kind of turn them around is just so brutal. So I just wondered if it was different for you. It's no different. I mean, it's again, whatever it's worth, having an MD next to your name or whatever doctor, it, it has weight and patients tend to listen. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those degrees are, are giving the wrong advice. You hear on Twitter, people is like, my family won't listen to me because my doctor told me I should avoid this. I should not eat that. And then they do the same. And they're not getting healthier. So there's a cognitive dissonance here. They're following advice. They don't feel better. They don't getting, they are getting sicker, but they still have this blind trust in the doctor. And there should be some, tra- I mean, doctors are great. Like in acute, you break a bone, you have trauma, you have a heart attack, a stroke. You want to be in a hospital. You want to be seeing a doctor, you get an infection, all those things. But when it comes to these indolent chronic problems that lead you to this amputated foot or kidney failure or blindness or heart disease, this is where we really have no clue what we're doing except prescribe medications. And if this is a lifestyle that got us there, only lifestyle could put us back on track. And that takes a lot of time. So the system is wrong because you you don't get reimbursed for that. You can't do 10-minute visit and talk about all these things, even if you knew it. And then doctors were so overwhelmed, they have to see 30, 40 patients a day, they don't have time to even see that site. I just happened to be lucky by having so much time off because I work seven days on, seven days off. So on my off days, I can read, look, you know, experiment on myself and then see what we can do, how we can help. So it's a difficult problem. So how would you describe your current dietary nutritional breakdown like i'm just wondering would you call it kind of and when we have to qualify when we say high protein it doesn't mean like a, you know side right, of beef, right. breakfast lunch and dinner but is it higher protein above the recommended dietary allowance of 0.8 grams per kilo like it's slightly higher than that slightly a little more fat smarter carbs uh, Initially, I used to kind of look at the macros and how much I'm eating. Generally, I think I'm in a range of more double the RDA. We use more pounds here. So the 0.8 to 1 per pound, so it's almost double that. So uh, that's how I've been doing it, not on purpose, just because that's how it ended up being where I feel steady. I don't feel hungry. I'm happy with one to two meals a day. There's no cravings. Muscle strength is there. Mental clarity is there. So I'm mostly high protein, animal-based 
lifestyle, what, what, what's the vegetables that I enjoy and like, and occasional fruits and stuff like that. So I, I swung, you know, initially when I did keto, I was like 100% keto. Then I was thinking about carnivore and I was like, I tried 100%. I, I felt great, but I'm thinking more realistically where people are, how can they change? It's really about what they eliminate before what they add. So for me, it's usually really extremely low carb. Fat is whatever comes with the food naturally, with the meat, with the vegetables. I avoid anything processed fats in terms of uh, trans fats or uh, vegetable oils, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the olive oil, the avocado, or coconut or butter, all that stuff is all fair game. I just don't go above and beyond adding fat because I didn't find an extra benefit for me for that. So mm-hmm. real food, don't overthink it. And then, um, you know, day by day, meal by meal. I don't know if, are you familiar with Doug Patton Jones or Raj Alengo? Just talking about the RDA for people who might be curious. So either, so if we're using kilos, 0.8 grams of protein per kilo, this is based on old urea nitrogen balance studies. Mm-hmm which really underestimated. So I don't know if you've heard of the indicator of amino acid oxidation. So this is a way of quantifying how much protein you need, because once you have an excess of amino acids, once your body uses more than it needs, the amino acids start to get oxidized for energy. So you can measure that. And this is quantifiable as opposed to estimating how much urea you're losing, which didn't account for, I think, feces and skin and whatever else so Mm -hmm. the rda is probably and this has been out for well over a decade should actually probably be 50 percent higher 1.2 grams per kilo so i don't know if that's what is that 2.2 grams per pound so it's interesting because when you think about sarcopenia age-related muscle loss satiety all the things that we want protein for like bone is 50 percent protein by weight only 20 percent calcium like it's probably worse, like when you think about the total amount of protein people are eating. So if you haven't heard of that research, you might want to jot it down and Definitely, yep. start of your seven days off, you can go read about it. But <laughs> it's just it just highlights for me how more potentially problematic it is. And then mealtime yeah, RDA enough. as a minimum rather yeah. than the recommended, you know. Yeah, and so if the minimum is 1.2, that's what we used to tell dialysis patients to get 1.2 to try to offset the amino acids lost in dialysis. And then the other interesting research, if you're into it, is it's better to get about 30 grams per meal or whatever, how many times you eat, as opposed to being protein heavy at dinner and protein light at breakfast. Because a lot of people just do, well, in the US, the stereotype is coffee and a, a Danish. But even if somebody had coffee and a muffin or coffee and toast, there's no protein, right? So, yeah, exactly. So, I want to kind of touch on a myth because I'm still dealing with it. 22 years into my career, this has been around long before that. And given your experience in nephrology, but do you still encounter, if you talk about, quote, higher protein, even before you, even after you quantify it for people that it's not a steak at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, do you hear that myth that protein is bad for your kidneys? It's still circulating. Uh, you know, I'm asked about that sometimes on Twitter. I honestly never thought about it until I was asked, like, why would they even think that so from a nephrology standpoint there's a there's a confusion between high protein when you already advanced kidney disease versus high protein causing kidney disease the problem is if you already advanced kidney disease this is when you get into trouble if you're high protein 
that's pre-dialysis, to metabolize and use that protein. This, this is different than high protein causing a kidney disease. There's absolutely no evidence at all of a high protein diet causing any kidney problems. So it still circulates. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know who keeps fueling it, but there is no, absolutely no connection between high protein and kidney failure. That's everything I've heard as well. And when you look at the papers, and so yeah, I think it's confusing for people because if you have kidney failure and you're eating protein, it can lead to the accumulation of protein metabolic byproducts right. that can throw off the f- taste of food. Like if urea builds up, you can mm-hmm. lose a taste for meat. It can taste very metallic. It can, might be cause a bit of lethargy and a bit mm-hmm. kind of... So when we say, a quote, a low-protein pro- diet, we're telling people to stick to like maybe 0.6, but not ideally, maybe 0.8, because you still need amino acids. And that's not evidence-based. It's just a way to kind of control the urea. And And you go into a catabolic state anyway. I mean, all these kidney patients, they really lose their muscle. Yeah, so I really think it's just symptom managed. If someone's doing fine, then they should eat more protein for those reasons. So I just want to kind of get your perspective you know, we kind of hear these things about, you know, low carb or get rid of junk food. No one's going to argue against junk food. If you think of the history of food guides around the world, I've looked into this because I've done lots of presentations. So 100 years ago, governments around the world looked at and the, go- the governments that kind of drove this was like US, Canada, European ethnic based focus. So they were looking at, you know, the food that was in the food supply. And they kind of broke it up into four or five groups on how people use foods and eat foods and commodity-based. So you had like grains, you had meats, you had dairy, fruits and vegetables. Do you think it's possible to eat a, what we would call a balanced diet? So getting foods from those food groups and still be healthy? Like you know, we think about some grains, some dairy, fruits, vegetables, assuming there's no allergies and all that kind of stuff. The short answer is yes. The long answer is it depends where you are metabolically. If you lived 100 years ago and almost everybody's metabolically healthy, eating uh, whole foods and including grains and fruit and they're seasonal and, you know, you eat, I mean, we used to eat way, way more meat and protein back then than we, I think, did now, do now. It's a different story. But when you're, if you're diabetic or metabolic, metabolic syndrome, obese, you know, all these things, then at that time eating these, high carbohydrate food, I think, in my opinion, is, is just going to make the metabolic condition worse. But can you get to that point? Yes. I think uh, like after I fixed my own metabolic syndrome, right now, I, I love rice. So every once in a while, I mean, I have sushi, I have rice. So I like that. I enjoy fruit from time to time. I, I eat vegetables. I love potatoes. So, so I think there is room and there should be room to eat that's diverse diet for people who want to do it. But it, it, it matters where you are when you are now. If you're diabetic and you want to eat the grains and potatoes, you're only going to make it worse. Fix your metabolism first, then find you where you, where you can live. Yeah, it's a good point because I read a paper a long, long time ago, and these are just estimates based on activity levels, but I think it was as recently as Victorian time, so that's the 1800s, that it wasn't uncommon for women to eat 3,000 calories a day and men five. 
we all heard stories from great great grandparents how they you know walked five miles to the whatever factory they were they were like working in the fields and that kind of stuff so they were eating more you probably got more nutrition like vitamins and mm-hmm. minerals but when they ate grains it was basically like probably oats that were just boiled into this mush that was like so unrefined it's a different story than eating cornflakes or rice krispies or white toast with marmalade i mean i, I hear from my dad like I, I mean even when i go i mean i'm not i'm only in late 30s but even when i grew up most people weren't overweight and then but when my dad's uh, time i mean bread was made at home and the bread was more from unrefined grains and it was made at home rather than this high refined flours and the the, the wheat was a different breed as well i mean it, it, something about it was different back then and it wasn't as uh metabolically damaging as it is these days and then the protein was part of the meals you know i i remember growing up i mean in lebanon we eat uh, a lot of meat a lot of liver and stuff like that and a lot of this stuff is even raw like we it'd be it'd be staple like over breakfast to have liver on the table uh, a lot of dairy and eggs and stuff like that with some bread and a lot of vegetables and then uh, and i remember the transition when we used to eat all these things and then Corn flakes and uh, Kellogg's kind of showed up in Lebanon when I was 10 or so. And I remember how exciting and new this thing. And, they, you know, put in milk and warm. And then they, you start seeing things change. Now, uh, kids in, even in Lebanon are just basically no different than, than in the U.S. A lot of cereal and donuts and the same stuff. And there's a huge obesity epidemic then as well. So... That's like uh, about 30 years ago, 28 years ago. You said you're yeah. late 30s. So that's obviously after North America because, and you're lucky. But yeah, because I can remember we ate really well, but I do remember in the 70s is when all those things started to sneak in. When I think about the cereals I used to eat, <laughs> Lucky Charms and Honeycombs. Yeah, and, I mean, they're delicious. But, yeah, of course uh, they're delicious. Yeah. Do you know what a wagon wheel is? No, no. no. It's, it, there's just so much like, it was the dawn of processed food and yeah. it was very different than probably even 20, 30 years before that. It's a good point. So yeah, I think I read somewhere and depending on who writes the paper that up to 60% of calories, at least in North America, come from ultra processed foods. And then there's foods that are, they look like grains and dairy, but they might be based on grains and dairy, but they're might be turned into a highly processed food. So yeah. people think they're eating those foods. I mean, when you, on the ingredient list, you can't read and it takes a whole page on the, on the label. Something is not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I struggle with, with my profession. When we talk about balance Friday and moderation, because nobody can quantify it. Nobody can qualify it. Nobody can define it. And so you kind of, well, you, you do two things. So you work in the hospital, then you have time off, and then you, you have another kind of practice, right? Yeah. So I started, uh, well, because of my frustration and, uh, and then being on the lockdown and stuff like that, and realized how COVID is hugely tied to metabolic health. I mean, I took care of a lot of COVID patients, and I saw the ones who were in the ICU and dying were average age uh, with no problem, but either obese or a little bit of diabetes. And these are the ones that were crashing and dying. And then the news were coming around about how metabolic health, and that's one of the biggest risk factors. Yet in the uh, recommendation, nobody talks about it. So uh, 
I started having an itch to help people do that. So I started uh, this side uh, hustle with uh, metabolic health. And now I coach people with the main focus, obesity, diabetes, people who are interested or willing to do the work to reverse course. So I do that on my uh, off time and help several people right now kind of really simple, but actionable daily steps over time to reverse their obesity uh, and diabetes. So, but I get inspired in the hospital, like how much that other work is important. So my frustration and build up anger, if you will, gets channeled into trying to help some people uh, outside that. Yeah, I mean, the hospital is going to keep you, not that you're going to lose your skills, but it's going to keep you on top of things, keep your clinical skills, keep you like sharp and and there's still a place for it. I mean, people come into acute oh, yeah. settings because they've got something that has to be stopped. And so there's not, it's not that there isn't a role for it, but I hope nobody thinks that they just get no, to I, I love the hospital because I feel like I'm making a difference. Even if I plant a seed in their mind, I've stopped so many medication in the hospital for many patients where there's just unnecessary medications and then encourage them. And they're just kind of, you, you know, don't depend on us to fix your chronic problems we can help you right now you're sick with whatever but long term it's in your hands so i I feel people uh, hopefully like me will stay in that hospital system in the conventional healthcare system to influence people to start looking after their own health otherwise we're just going to go backward i think it's slowly happening and as you said you started reading and then going down that kind of rabbit hole when you look at all those online presentations there's tons of, of all people, engineers tackling these problems because mm-hmm. they really take health as a, they look at the mechanistic problems and they really do a problem solving approach in a way that's a little removed, I think, than doctors. But there's tons of doctors, tons of PhDs, primary researchers who are really now spreading the news. And I have no problem with that. I think if people listen to people with those kind of education and training, that's only going to be better for the long term. But I think it's I think it's starting because it's like you can't ignore it anymore, as you say. Oh. Well, we also live in a bubble, though. People, we think it started, but we don't, we, I think the same people follow each other. So I worry that it's only a niche still and relatively speaking, because mm-hmm. when I just look outside the window, I go to this, around me, I just don't feel it as much. So uh, I'm still worried about that. I think the best thing healthcare can do, the providers, is to suspend their ego and think that their degree qualifies them for the advice and just question what they believe. Even we're told in medical school, you know, half the things you learn is going to be wrong within a few years. So I think just being open to other outside opinion, fresh opinions, engineers are the best at looking objectively at things and breaking it down and then uh, exploring other ideas. We just have to be willing to accept that we probably were wrong for years and it's time to shift okay to be wrong and admit it a hundred percent agree so just as we wrap up i know people are going to be dying to know what you do in a typical day so i know it's a little different than just eating low carbs you have a couple of other strategies if you can share sure uh right now in the past probably call it a year or so my my normal uh, thing is um i wake up early i like to wake up early i sit down and i read a little bit of something outside of uh, medicine, some uh, philosophy, some other books, and then uh, sometimes meditation. And then I don't eat. I have my coffee. I don't eat breakfast. I'm just not hungry in the morning. 
and it depends how it is during the day. I may eat lunch, I may not, and uh, have dinner later. So I, I follow like my hunger uh, signals, and I, I just go with that. I work out at home. I have a power bar, and I do a simple exercise that have gone got me a long way, which is a combination of uh, body uh, strength exercises between squat, pull up, and push up variations. You know, 15, 20 minutes to three times a week for me. That's been great. I go spend a lot of time outside whenever I can, uh, when it's sunny, even when it's not sunny. And then half my time is in the hospital and the other half is uh, doing, working on this uh, side thing. I tweet whenever I can, try to help people, influence people. And I have, um, I try also a little bit on uh, Instagram with some twist of personal, uh, you know, food when I pictures and how I cook and what I cook and some commentary there. Some great shots of people who like meat. Great shots of, uh, <laughs> of meat. I'm and trying to include more vegetables. <laughs> it's mouth-watering. I'm living in Texas, I guess. You get access to some good meat. What was I going to say? So you spontaneously, just because of hunger cues, you're insulin sensitive, you find yourself spontaneously eating two meals a day. Yes. And, that's an, and what a lot of people would think is that that is a form of calorie restriction that must result in weight loss but whatever it is you're doing your weight is stable oh yeah i've been the same weight uh, i've reached i've hit 158 which i've never been and about a year ago and uh, whether i fast or eat a lot or it's just kind of been in those 158 to 160 i reached a, a new uh, a thermostat setting that i i'm happy with i don't want to lose more if i gain i want it to be muscle you know, I haven't put a lot of work. I'm not looking to be bulky, but I want to be strong. Mm -hmm. And that's where uh, my work. So if I gain weight, it'll be muscle weight. But yeah, I mean, if you let, if you fix your metabolism and fix your signals to listen to your body, the body is, uh, is smart. It's not waiting for us to, uh, uh, to fix itself. It will work on itself. Just let it, give it the chance to do it. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting where we came up with this idea where we have to eat three meals a day and that somehow you couldn't squeeze in enough calories in two meals. It's just, it doesn't really require much more analysis than that, but it's just shaking these long held beliefs that you don't have to eat. Cause you know, there's stupid things like breakfast is the most important meal of the day yeah, and that yeah. kind of stuff. So it's just, it's just uh, interesting. When you read where this came from, it makes you much more jaded. Uh, you know, all these uh, food companies, they want you to eat that stuff. I mean, think about it. I think of it very simple terms, evolutionary. We didn't, evolve thinking about calories how much we're eating we're hungry we eat we're not hungry we're looking for food or you know hunting or whatever so the body regulates itself if we just let it be and do that uh, we don't even have to worry about how much protein how much fat how much carbs except it's hacked by the processed food so that's the only thing we have to pay attention to the highly processed food hack our code and then we have to, once we eliminate that i think we can the body will work on itself. Yeah, no, agreed. Okay, so you mentioned Twitter and you mentioned Instagram. So what are your profiles, names, and then any other thing you want to share with the group? Or the listeners uh, yeah, my, so on Twitter, I'm Eli Giroux, MD, And on Instagram, it's the same thing with an underscore. But if you type my name, probably not going to find another one with that name. I have also a website called metabolichealthmd.com. Uh, you can learn more about me there. I mean, the, if you're interested in uh, coaching or 
even working on reversing certain conditions, you can reach out to me. My advice to people is really keep it simple. It's simple. It's not easy. Uh, you just have to make a decision. A lot of it is uh, focus on what's under your control. And that a lot of has to do with what you eat, what you don't eat. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to, if you try something that doesn't work, do something else. There's no right or wrong. There's a spectrum and something's going to work for you. It's not going to work for other people. Just you do you and then just do something to change your uh, health trajectory. That was a perfect and succinct summary. So I don't think I have anything to add, but other than thank you. I appreciate it, Doug. Keep up the good work. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, just go ahead and hit subscribe. Be sure to visit my website, DougCookRD.com, for more great content. Be sure to share this with your friends or anyone you feel would benefit from this information. And if you want to share this to social media, go ahead and tag me as well. I hope you have a great day and thanks for listening. I look forward to being with you in future episodes.